Now, do you have someone in your life that you love with everything you are? You absolutely, they are so important to you and you absolutely love them, but they have made it clear to you. And I'm not just talking about that they've rejected you because that's something we've been talking about in weeks past. I'm just talking about the fact that they have utterly rejected God, Jesus, this whole thing that you believe in and do. And again, like I say, maybe they've rejected you too. Maybe they haven't. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to us today is, is have they rejected completely God? And then there's two issues to that, right? One of them is eternity. You know that that's a problem, <laughs> that there's going to be a difference. This person that you love is not going to be with you where you are. You're not going to have that fellowship and that oneness. You're not going to have that for eternity. But the second issue is the one that they're missing out on so much of life right now. There's so much more that could be happening. There's so much more that God would, wants to do and all this kind of stuff. Now, I just want to ask the question, does anybody, how many people in here have somebody in their life you, that you would say yes to this? Okay? Now, I wish, and I, I, I want to say something I would, I would wish that every hand would go up at that point in time, not because you would have somebody that was rejecting God, but because it just demonstrates that you're allowing the Lord to put on your heart people that need him. Because that really is what we're talking about. I'm going to tell you something, and I'm just going to be, you know, I, you know, I got to share something sometimes, and this is one of those times I got to share something, even though I don't like sharing it this way. But from, I've been saved for 40 years, 40 plus years now, since I was 19 and I'm 62 as of uh, Friday. And so whatever the math is on that, you figure that out. But for all those years, I can tell you something. There has never been a time, not even a short season, where God hasn't had two or three people that he put on my heart. They just were there. They just, and, and it, it wasn't just on my heart. Can you understand what I'm saying? It's a burden. It's not a burden that I want to get rid of. It's a burden I'd like to see resolved. But it's not a burden that I'm unwilling to carry. To the contrary, I'm absolutely and utterly completely willing to carry it because I love them. God has put this love in my heart. Now, that doesn't mean I don't love other people as much or anything like that. What I'm saying is there's always two or three people that the Lord has just, he just leaves them there. And then I pray for them and pray for them and, and let my emotions, let my heart, let everything in me extend to them in every way possible. They're not a project. There's not a time frame critically, there is not any time that I'm offended by them, despite the fact that they may be quite offensive to me, something I could have taken offense about, but I don't, because God has put something else in my heart. It's not me. It's just this thing that is in there that I'm just utterly and completely and totally for them no matter what. Unconditional, going after it. 
There it is. When we talk about what we've been talking about in this season, I just want to say, I think this is what God is trying to do. I think he's trying to plant people in our hearts where they can take root, where we can start lifting them up. In fact, let me make a claim. You know that since Easter, we've been talking about bringing people to the Lord. All kinds of different aspects of that, not to be afraid of it and everything else. But let me, just, let me just say what's in my heart, what I think God's trying to say to us today. What if evangelism is at its heart this? It's not about giving them a track. It's not about standing on a street corner. It's not about whatever. What if, what if evangelism is simply love? Just overwhelming, overpowering, absolutely overflowing love. What if that's what it is at its heart? Now, I'm not saying there's not other things that you may do. He may have you do or he may have others do. But I'm saying, does that seem like too much? We talk about all of us are supposed to be evangelists, and what we always say to that is, is I'm not, because I can't lead them to the Lord. I can't talk to them about this. I don't know what to say here. I'm not wise enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. I'm not. But are you a human being that can love? Are you, have you ever loved anybody the way that I'm talking about? Just that they were in your heart all the time? Well, what if that's what he means when he says we're all evangelists? There's literally every single person in the world who's being carried in at least one other person's heart. If you have not signed up yet for this thing that we're praying for, um, do that. Just, just email. The, if you don't even know what I'm talking about, you're going to see it at the very end of the sermon but just email the office and say, I want to be on the list where we are praying for one person to, to trust God, to be bold, to be anointed. But what I'm really saying is, is that we're trusting that that person has somebody in their heart, that Lord has placed and planted somebody that they are caring, standing in the gap. You see it? Does this sound like something that you could get a hold of so that we're genuinely fulfilling what God is asking us to fulfill. Does this seem a lot more doable than what we usually mean by evangelism when we're actually talking about something quite superficial, quite surface level? Like I've got to talk to them, which usually there will be a talking at some point in time, but if it's coming from your heart, if it's coming from love, haven't you had the Lord step in and start to say things through you? Right? I mean, that's, that's a hallmark of love right? So this is what we're going for today. God is going to show us a way to think about this, a way to understand this, and a way to enter into this that I think is going to cause every one of us to become, taking a, a giant step forward on what it is to be his instrument in bringing the rest of the world. That vision. Wouldn't it be great if every single person that didn't know him, he'd been able to plant that person in somebody's heart? So who's our prayer? Kathy Miller, where are you? Oh, lovely, how are you? I, you guys, you guys, it's perfect that you're praying because you guys live this. This is what you do all the time now. I just absolutely love it. So pray for the sermon, lift up another church, would you? Whoa, it's so great to be in family, Father God. It's so great to know that you are in the midst of us and that you've brought every single person here today for a purpose and for a reason. There's so many out there that don't know what it's like to be a part of your family. 
There's so many out there that are living in despair and shame and fear. And Father, all they need is for someone to love them, someone to have joy and happiness with them, someone to smile at them, because that's what you did. You brought the truth, and you brought love. Thank you, Jesus. And that's all we need to do, is bring your truth and bring your love. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that the church in Wasilla, Alaska, the rock, practice this very thing. Amen. There are so many there who don't know you. So many there that use the environment as their God. They need you. They need you. Just like we do. Just like all of Bellevue and Kirkland and Renton. Father, may we be the instruments of your peace. Amen. We give you this day. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And we are so grateful that we don't have to do this alone. Your spirit is with us, guiding and directing every single minute of every single day. Thank you. Thank you, Papa God. Amen. His name, amen. I really want to make a shout out, just a little shout out about the worship night that's coming up. Uh, some of us get to be here on Tuesday nights when, when the Belarusian church is doing the worship that they're doing, and there's such a strong anointing on that. And then joining with the churches, I just think that that's something God's been wanting to do in this building for a long time, and I actually put it on me a lot, but I just haven't got it done. My bandwidth just hasn't been such as to figure that out right. And I'm actually kind of happy that I'm not the one figuring it out. I'm happy that it's you guys, this generation, and that it's under that banner of worship, because that's where it belongs. That's the first thing. Other things come, but I can't wait for that night. Now, I'm unfortunately going to be in Denver, so I'm really like, but can we stream in, or what can we do, you know? Can't wait. Thank you. All right, so here's where we are. We're at that place where, where we've done the Last Supper. They prayed in the garden. Jesus got done praying. Here comes uh, we've already done this one, but even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss, but Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Can I just make a note for somebody that colors off on the, on the laser, on the projector? Okay, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Okay, so we did that last time, and we also kind of did this part of it, which is when the other disciples saw it was about to happen, they explained, Lord, should we fight? We, we brought the swords, because he had talked about that as we talked about weeks ago. And one of them struck. Now, who would it be who would struck at the, <laughs> right? Before Jesus had a chance to answer, say, no. <laughs> so, and one of them struck at the priest, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Okay? I mean, there's what Jesus does, right there. Other people doing other things. This is what Jesus does. And what we're going to be learning today is how God loves us. Because that's how he's wanting us to love others. So having said that, now we get to the passage we're really looking at. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? In the daylight, I was there every day. But this is your moment. This is the time you choose, and this is the moment that's been appointed for you 
which is when the power of darkness reigns. Now, just, just, just briefly, why didn't they arrest him when he was in the temple and it was day and all that? Why didn't they do that? Go ahead. They were afraid of the people. Perfect. They were afraid what people were going to do, how they were going to respond, right? Which is to say in another way, now watch this, they didn't want to lose control of the situation and they knew they could. <laughs> I want to say something right now. Not, not, people do not realize this, but you have to let go of control in order to find Christ. You cannot try and control the situation. If you do, you will control it into, in a direction and in a way and to a degree that you do not find Christ, period. That is one of the hallmarks of it. Christians are people that have learned to let go. They've learned to actually let God. They've learned to actually experience him in a completely different way where he has control. That is not natural to us, but it's what we do. And when you do that, then you take yourself away from what is light and you bring yourself into what is darkness. Now, I want you to think about that, though, because I want you to think about the nature of what this darkness is. What he says here is, the power of darkness reigns. Now, let's look at what that darkness is and what God does about it, because it's different than we think. We think of darkness and evil as obvious. It isn't. It's anything but obvious to somebody who doesn't know light. If you know nothing but darkness, it has its own logic, its own reality, it's perfectly formed and orbed, and it makes perfect sense itself. And to the person that's in it, it doesn't seem like darkness at all. To the contrary, it seems like somebody who's outside of that is in deception. Now watch. Here's where darkness comes from. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible, we're coming back, for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, the earth itself and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. This word responsible, this is the message, that's a heavy paraphrase, it's trying to get to the thought of it, and actually they do a really nice job with this right here because you always hear that verse translated something like dominion. That's what you think of. Now understand, there's two different ways in our culture of understanding dominion. One of them is the one that is synonymous with a root word for domineering. Control. Imposing your will upon. That is a way that we think of dominion. Another way that we think of dominion though, and, and this is, is having a responsibility for. You have, given, you have been given this thing, take care of it. This is this silly thing that goes on when, when and this didn't happen, it was more accused of happening, but, but where it was accused that Christians were saying, well, we have dominion so we can do anything with the earth that we want. That's not what God said. What he said was tend it, care for it, like a garden, right? That means be careful, don't do stupid things, don't pollute it, don't destroy it, okay? That you're destroying your own home, for heaven's sakes. So take care of it, right? You have responsibility for it. All of these things. Having said that, there's a drinking game that goes on with me saying having said that, so please don't do that in church. You can play it later, okay? Reflecting God's nature, he created them male and female. God blessed them. Oh, no, just say, yeah, God created human beings. He created them God-like in terms of having this 
responsibility. And in terms of having this control, but that means responsibility, see? You can, you can think about it from the top down or you think about it from the bottom up. And God always does bottom up. So reflecting God's nature, he created a male and female. God bless them. Prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Okay? So here we go. This is, God gave us dominion. He gave us the responsibility. He gave us the care for. And what did we do with it? In the garden, through Adam and Eve, we gave that dominion, that, 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 that control over to Satan who does domineer. We gave it to him in the garden. And in fact, many ways you can do that, but here's one way where Jesus says, this time for, the time for judging the world has come when Satan, what? Jesus is saying this. Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And what does he call Satan at this point in time? The ruler of this world. Ruler. Not taking responsibility, not caring for you bottom up, but domineering down. Okay? So there we go. The ruler of this world. Now, we know that that's the case, and here's where it gets key. Think about the religious leaders. Jesus said to them, the religious leaders plotting to kill him, if God were your father, you would love me. But you're of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires, who was a murderer from the beginning, which is to say, you're going to kill me. He's telling them, you're going to kill me. That's what's in your heart is to kill me. We can always ask that question. Remember, we think of that. For what? For healing people? Oh my God, we should kill everybody who heals somebody. For helping them? For delivering them? For blessing them? For what? Because they're in a darkness. But here's the key. Do they know that they're in that darkness? Do you think that the chief priests had, like way back in the back of their mind, wow, I know I'm really evil, but I'm going to be like facadish good. They don't. To their mind, to their way of thinking, they are not only not evil, they are precisely the ones who are protecting God from evil Christians. These people who are making God out to be more than one and, and, taking all, and taking Judaism away from where God intended it to be, which is the pure worship of God. You see it? They think of themselves as the people who are helping God, protecting God, blessing God. They think of God as smiling on them for what they're doing to Jesus and to the Christians. Do you see that? That's how they think about themselves. Now, what we do, because we've heard the end of the story, we look back on them, and we tend to paint them in a snidely, whiplash, Ebenezer Scrooge mode. Do you see it? We think of them as these conniving, evil, greedy, you know, all this kind of stuff. And certainly there was that stuff going on in them, as Jesus pointed out. But again, that's not their self-perception. They don't think of themselves that way at all. And for us to go to a caricature is to miss what's actually happening. Which is to say, they're just in a deception. They're in darkness and they just don't know it. That's all. Look, this is near and dear to me. 
about how many people uh, basically grew up knowing Jesus. How many of you just grew up knowing Jesus? Raise your hands. That's a really large percentage. How many people did not? That's still quite a few people. Here's the deal. Here's a little irony for you. People that grew up with Jesus will oftentimes lament that they do not have a great testimony like those who later found him. But here's what the ones who later found him think. Man, I wish I had known him the whole time so I didn't do all that stupid stuff. <laughs> right? But the thing that I'm trying to get at is this. I was one of the ones who grew up not knowing him. And I'm telling you, I had no conception whatsoever that anything I was thinking in rejecting him was wrong. As I've said before, I'm not going into it in great detail. I grew up Berkeley. That means the University of California at Berkeley. I grew up Berkeley. And here's what Berkeley means. You're kind of weak if you need the crutch. We know better. There isn't a God. There isn't anything else out there. You'd be much better if you would marshal your intellect, if you would marshal your will towards figuring out how to live in a world that can be brutal, but can also have its charms. You will enjoy life much better if you put away childish things, if you put away things that are deceptions that you rely upon to your own harm. Literally, I thought that Christians weak, were weak-minded and that they were actually hurting themselves from, in, from engaging the life and the world properly, rightly. And that's not to say I engaged it rightly or properly. I knew that I had problems, and I knew that I made mistakes, but that didn't matter to me at all. If you want to understand something, you have to understand the mindset of somebody who does not, has not ever seen the light. If you have not seen the light, how do you describe light? If all you've ever lived in is darkness, how do you describe light? You do not know that it exists because there's no reason for you to know that it exists. You can't just make it up. You really don't believe that it exists. You believe that people are deceived and that that's why they think something's there because they can't handle how hard life can be. Face up to it. But boy, if you do face up to it, you will do better through it. Now that's what I thought. And here's what you have to understand. That is an entirely consistent logical construct that is not lacking in anything to be complete in itself. There may be evidences in the world that you cannot explain, but you have a way of explaining them with inside of that circle of logic and understanding. Do you see that? And so you have ways of saying things. There's a friend of mine who is undergoing a very serious cancer scare, and it's tough, and we were talking. He's a guy I went through seminary with, and he's in Florida. And he is a chaplain. He became a chaplain. And neither he or I would have ever thought we ever wanted to do that. But the fact of the matter is, is as I get older, I can totally see it. And here's what he said to me. He said, if you have ever been scared of death, or if you ever wondered even a little bit about what happens after death, be a chaplain. He said, the things that you will see, not every time, but over and over and over again, what you will see 
It will make you never fear death at all. To the contrary, you will see people passing into glory and it will make you long for it. Not that you would take it in your own hands, of course, but you would long for the day that you get released from these bonds to be with the Lord. Because you watch people doing that and you see and feel it coming over them. And he said, the second thing is, if you ever wondered if it was all true, you just see it over and over and over again. <laughs> and the most extraordinary things. And he says, I never ever even think about it anymore. And he said, this cancer, he said, I would like not to die from it, but I have no fear. None. Not bad, huh? Well, that's, see, in the construct of the world, well, they're afraid of death, and so they're just explaining something. They're making up something in order to comfort them. That's the common complaint philosophically, right? And that might be true. But what if it's not? <laughs> what if there actually is something else? Because I can tell you what happened to me. I lived inside of this totally completed loop and had no idea that it was darkness. And one day, in a way that I'm not going to go into in much detail, but we're in Vail, Colorado, and I needed to do something solemn with Julie, and, and I had no idea what to do that was solemn because I was a guy of the world, and there is no solemn in the world, right? There's just sort of mo meaningful moments, and I was trying to make this a meaningful moment. And it just flashed into my mind. I never thought about God, ever. And any time I did, it was like I say, with this sort of Berkeley mentality about it was just stupid and weak and all that. But I didn't spend any time persecuting Christians or chasing them. I just felt sorry for them and moved on. And all of a sudden, I had this moment that I needed to be solemn with, with Julie. And I just said, well, you know what? I guess. Here. I took her hands in the first words of my prayer, which was not even a prayer to me. It was just trying to make the moment solemn. I wasn't praying to anybody because there wasn't anybody there. But the first words that I prayed were, is God, if you are there. And it was right on the there that I felt somebody listening. I felt them listening so palpably that if Vijay came up to me right now and said something to me, it would be no less palpable than that. But the interesting thing is, Vijay saying something to me right now, a few years from now, I might not remember. It's been 40-some years since that moment happened, and I can conjure it in a heartbeat. All I got to do is think about it, and I still feel it. I never wonder if God is there, ever, because he is. And he didn't say anything. <laughs> he didn't even do anything. But all of a sudden, as the hymn goes, the most famous hymn, the most famous song in the history of the world is Amazing Grace. You can measure such things. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And here's the line that is the most important line in the most famous song in the history of the world. Was blind, but now I see. And I'm telling you, when I took her hand and I said, God, if you're there, and suddenly he was there, <laughs> I went from blindness a sight. <laughs> I mean, I could see. I had a world that was entirely consistent within itself, 
and had explained away any evidences to the contrary. And suddenly, there was a reality that was in front of me that was in complete opposition to the reality that I had constructed. <laughs> and at that moment in time, I had no choice but to refigure, <laughs> but to recalibrate and to figure out what the heck this was. Because this was real, and as I've said, even at that moment, I knew that it was more real than anything I'd ever experienced. You see it? I was blind, and suddenly I saw. Now here's the point for what we're doing today. Those priests that did not know that Jesus was God were blind, and they couldn't see. Now that takes them into an entirely different realm, right? We can say, oh, well, they were pushing the truth away from them, and there's truth in that. So was I. But I didn't have any way of knowing that that was true. Not until God opened my eyes, and then I saw simply and quickly, easily, how I'd been pushing him away. It all became completely obvious. Now, if that's true, then we have to recalibrate how we think about people that are pushing him away. Because from our perspective, this is a very millennial sermon, by the way. What millennialism, what millennialism is doing, and this is a very big strength of it, there's always a godly truth in the things that are happening. There's also worldly things in it that are bad. But there's always at the heart of a new zeitgeist, a new spirit of the age, which millennialism is. We're getting it from millennials. But here's what millennialism is. In all those classes where you had to get to all those different perspectives, they teach you how to get outside of yourself and how to get into the shoes of somebody else in order to see the world, in order to see life, in order to see reality from their vantage point. Now, you can't do that perfectly but you can do it better. And until you do it, you're not really seeing where they're at, truthfully. So what God is doing is he's doing exactly this. Now watch this. Here's Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, requested letters from the synagogues in Damascus. See, here's Saul, Paul. This is Paul, the Paul, you know, the Bible Paul. And he has a reality constructed that is absolutely true, absolutely real, absolutely consistent. He is pleasing God by going and requesting letters from the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them to prisoners in Jerusalem. In fact, let's be clear about something right now. When they stoned Stephen, they put the cloaks at Paul's feet. What does that mean? He's the guy that was in charge. that he might bring his prisoners. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a darkness light, a light shone around him. Now in this case, in order to really emphasize it, highlight it, underline it, italicize it, and bold it, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Who are you? <laughs> and he says, Lord, so good for him. And he said, 
I'm Jesus, the one who you're persecuting. Now, you've already killed Saul, you've killed a few others, you're putting people in jail, and you're out there breathing fire against Christians, and all of a sudden you got Jesus talking to you. You think that changed his reality in a moment? <laughs> right? Boom. <laughs> wow. And then again, just to not only emphasize it, but to up the font to 36 verses 12. So Ananias, this prophet who comes, laid his hands on him and said, the Lord Jesus has sent me so that you may be gained what? Sight. Now this is in the literal, because he's blinded right now from the light. Now think about that metaphorically. The reality that he was in, the bright light blinded him. <laughs> So he couldn't see in the world. And now all of a sudden, you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. In the natural, he regained his sight, but it is a story that we get the deeper meaning of, which is this is when he now sees. I get it. And by the way, how did he get it? because he was so smart, he'd read his Bible so much that he knew everything, right? Because actually the way that he got it was the Holy Spirit came inside of him and showed him what it was true. That's how people come to know the truth. It's not because they figured it out, it's because God touches you. No one comes except Jesus draws them. Jesus touches them, Jesus makes them new. Jesus. Now, clearly, this is Paul going through a blind and now I see phase. We're talking about this idea of getting into other people's shoes. Now, watch what happens here. He's coming out of darkness. Now, watch. When we are approaching somebody who does not know the Lord, if we look down on them, if we think we know more than those who do not believe, if that's our attitude is to come from the top down, then what happens? People resist that. They always do. But the more problematic fact is, is that's not how God sees them. God's on high, right? Like pretty high, right? <laughs> like as high as it gets high. And God could easily come down from on high upon. And he does that, of course, in the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to understand, it's not domineering. What he does is he comes down upon to wash feet, to save, to cleanse, to make new. He doesn't come down upon to domineer. By the way, it's not how he sees us. Let's just walk through this now. Always remember something about God. He's two things at once which are not reconcilable in our hearts. The living beings, the angels, surround him and are flying and they're saying all the time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, 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 three times holy. Holy, holy, perfectly holy. That's why it's repeated three times. That means three is the number of perfection. It's Perfectly holy. Now here's the problem with being perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. You can't really have mercy on people. You see? Because to have mercy would mean to sort of 
cover up what they've done wrong. You gotta hold them accountable to everything. That's perfectly holy. But the problem is God is also love. How do you reconcile that? Because love is mercy. <laughs> love is a person made a mistake and God covers. So how do you reconcile that? That's pretty easy, right? God stays true to both in Jesus. His holiness is fully expressed and satisfied at the cross in the death of Jesus, right? Everything that everybody had ever done wrong in any way, shape, or form was brought upon Jesus at the cross. His holiness was perfectly holy, 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 satisfied. But what he did was is he took all that upon himself. <laughs> Instead of it having come upon you who did it, he took it upon himself in Christ. And when he did that, it becomes the most magnificent possible manifestation of love. <laughs> See this? He took to the nth degree his holiness, but upon himself, and so it was to the nth degree his love. God has not stayed on his throne looking down in judgment on us. He leaves his heavenly throne in the persons of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't sit on his heavenly throne surrounded by the angels and pass judgment with arms crossed and bony finger pointing at the terrible things that y'all have done. He comes off of his throne. He comes down right into the middle and he joins us in the muddy life and reality of our lives. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now right here, remember I said something about millennialism. What it does is, is it sees the thing from somebody else's perspective and that causes us to think differently about them. From our perspective, we can judge. We can come down upon domineering. You're wrong, you're deceived, you're in darkness, you're evil. But here's what God does. I know exactly what you were feeling. I felt it too. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came and lived with us. Now this is just this is just him talking. I wanted it muted, but that's okay. Thank you for fixing it. No, 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 don't, because I want the other one. But this is just Jesus. He's he's with us. He's talking to us, right? Don't listen to it. He's he's in the middle. But then, this one I do want sound on. Thank you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that Ebenezer Scrooge priest, and what Jesus is saying is forgive him, he knows not what he does. By the way, the priests in that scene, they acted it out well because the priest is offended that Jesus would be praying for him. <laughs> right? But do you see what Jesus is doing? That priest is the reason why he's on that cross. 
That priest is the reason why he suffered physically like he suffered. And that priest is the reason why he's about to suffer the incredible suffering that he goes through at the moment that he is separated from the Father as he becomes our sin. Now, of course, it wasn't that priest at all that did that, really, right? Jesus was in utter control. But from the way we can see things, from the way we think of things, that priest did something horrible. But how did Jesus treat him? What was his comment about him? Father, judge him for the stupid, rotten thing he's doing right now, that evil schmuck. But what does he say instead? He doesn't know what he's doing. So forgive him. I came to save him too. He may not receive it, but that's not the point. How does he come to us? He never comes domineering. He certainly could. And in the final judgment, even then there's not that, but you certainly have something closer to that. But he always comes instead washing feet, cleansing, serving, giving every person an opportunity to choose. And he's asking us to do the same thing because here's Stephen, the very first martyr, and he falls to his knees as he's being stoned for what he has said. And he shouts, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And then he dies. Why not? <laughs> if, you're, if you're getting rocks pounded down on you to the point that it's going to kill you, isn't there something inside of you that says, you know, maybe don't kill them, but make them sick, <laughs> right? Give them some like, horrible disease for a couple months. Some, yeah, something. Look what they're doing to me. but he gets completely outside of his own realm, his own perspective, his own way of seeing the world, and he remembers who he once was. Now we're sort of getting right to the heart of it. We can think if only they would listen to us, people that don't believe, that everything would be better and would be healed, and that's true. If they would listen to you, it would be better. It would make a difference. It's true. But here's the point. If we look down, if we're thinking that we're more than we are, then we become a clanging symbol. This is 1 Corinthians 13, the one that's read at the weddings. Right? You may know everything. If you don't have love, it's worth nothing. What does that mean for our context today? It doesn't matter. Keep loving. If Jesus was able to love the priest that was putting him on that cross, if Stephen was, Stephen was able to love the people that were stoning him, do you think maybe you could love the person that because of the darkness that they were in, a darkness, by the way, which you were once in, don't you think that maybe you could have a heart for the fact that they just don't get it? They really don't see it. They think they're doing the right thing. And from their worldview, it actually is the right thing. The judgments of the Old Testament are not God causing a bad thing to happen because we did a bad thing. It's not, you did a bad thing. That is not what all those prophets we were reading for so many months in soap were all about. That's not what they're all about. They're not punishment. 
when the bad things that happen are rather, when we go our own way, we injure ourselves. Literally, we're hurting ourselves and that grieves God. So what he does is he loves us so he allows us to suffer some of the consequences of our choices in hopes that we will see what we are doing to ourselves and repent and then enter into the exceedingly good things God has for us. This is what those punishments are. We are blind. God is trying to get us to where we will see. And what is that? Splonizomai. The Greek word for moved with compassion, it literally means his guts turned. And when his guts would turn, it was empathy. It was he would feel what they were feeling, the pain that they were in. And as God, he would reach out and heal it. Now, not as God, but as an as a anointed servant of God, the Holy Spirit would heal them because he had laid that down. He had that ability, but he laid it down. And he was letting the Holy Spirit do it through him. But you see what I'm talking about. What he did was is he would be moved by the pain that somebody was in because of the way that they were hurting themselves, no matter what it was. And one instance of that, we could look at many. It's said almost, it said the vast majority of times that Jesus heals somebody, there's that word splunknitzomai in it somewhere. The two men were sitting by the road, blind men. They heard that Jesus was passing by. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd told them to keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Look, the crowd was telling him, shut up, don't bother him. They're crying out. Lord, have mercy. And Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want me to do? Open our eyes. Do you know why I picked this particular one now? Open our eyes. Open our eyes and heal us. Splunk needs so my gut turning, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they could see. Really what we're talking about, the way that God deals with us is empathy. Not from on high, holier than thou. Not better than, even though he is. God does this extraordinary thing of coming to feel what we feel. And in Christ Jesus, he made it clear to us abundantly that he feels exactly what we're feeling. This is extraordinary. God could have done it so many other ways. But the way he did it was so loving. He knows what the person is feeling. He's experiencing it through their perspective, through their eyes, through their world. And in that, he is moved feeling what the other person is feeling and being moved by it in the depths of your soul. See, this is something we need to remember, right? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and then be hated by others and hating one another. Paul says in another place, don't forget who you were. <laughs> and here's why that's so important. Think about this. Who's the biggest evangelist in the history of the world? Who brought more people to the Lord? Maybe not as a number because at this point in time with billions of people, we got more that we can hit. But who brought more people? Paul. Paul, that's what I say. See, when you get to, when you get to the modern days. But as a, as a percentage of the world, as, as the person that changed the face of the world as an evangelist, it's Paul. 
But here's what we got to remember about Paul. Here's how he thought of himself. We think of Paul, I, I want you to see something real quick here. When you think of Paul, sometimes we actually think of him as pointing a pointy little finger at us, don't we? Because he's pretty judgmental. You know why he's judgmental? Because a lot of what he's writing in the letters is to try and correct churches. So we end up getting a lot of information about him trying to correct people. But here's the truth of the people that knew him. He comes and he wasn't that impressive. But the one thing that everybody that met him knew was he loved him. And why did he love him? Why did he love him even more? Think about all the people that he had that, that knew this. Watch this. This is a trustworthy saying, says Paul about himself. And everyone should accept it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the chief. <laughs> I'm the worst of them all. Because have you killed Christians because they were Christians? I don't know how you would get something worse against Christ and Christianity than that. You can reject him in all sorts of ways and do all sorts of things, but if what you're doing is killing Christians because they're Christians, and that's who he did, that's what he was doing. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. And I'm going to add one little statement that he could have made in there. And this enormous mistake, this enormous evil that I did keeps my knee bent. Keeps me from thinking that I'm better. Keeps me from domineering. Because Paul's natural tendency would be to do that, wouldn't it? God took the number one evangelist in all the world and he gave him something to make him walk with a limp so that he would never think of himself as better than other people. Instead, he would always think of himself as less than other people. And all he's trying to do is help him. Help him to find the truth, help him to enter into the truth. With all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we want those whom we love to come to know him. So we must try to see the world reality, their life, the way they do. Because that's what God does with us. And if it weren't for the grace of God, that's who we still would be. <laughs> we got to meet the need in a real way. A real need in a real way. Feed the inner wolf. If you did not hear it last week, Justine's sermon, got to hear it. She, she used that dog commercial where, you know, your dog is really a wolf inside. And she used it as a metaphor. And the metaphor was is that the dog was the person in the world and the superficial way that we see ourselves in the world. But what she was pointing out was is that there's an inner man, a spirit man. And that a spirit man is crying out. And as it cries out, we try and feed it things of the world, which would be otherwise known as dog food. When what we're really needing is the real meat from God. We're not meeting the real need. We're meeting the one that people want. What, 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 a mom, what a mom wants is a spa day. And she, she made it very clear, spa days are great. If you can get one, take it. But if you think that that's gonna solve all of your issues, don't be misled. The fact of the matter is, is that there's a deeper thing that's crying out within you. And until you meet that, you will always be harried. You will always be under. You will always be pressed. 
meet their real need in a real way. Well, how do I do that? Well, there's two ways. What does God do with you? What does he do with you? He comes in and he starts feeding the wolf. He starts feeding the inner man. He starts feeding the spirit. And when you get fed the spirit, then you start understanding what it is to be fed spirit food, not dog food. <laughs> right? And when you got that, you're able more to go after that for somebody else. Which is to say, let God do, do what only he can do in and through you. In fact, here's the end of it. Which is to say, what if evangelism is simply splunk needs am I? What if that's what it really is at its heart? I'm not saying there won't be a time that you're going to talk to somebody, but I want to make something clear. If you really love somebody, I mean, if you really, if God has put somebody on your heart and you're burdened with them, you've got it on the inside, there's this deep thing that's taking place in you. If that is really happening in you, how hard is it to talk to them? It just isn't. It's not an evangelistic presentation. It's your heart that God uses to pour out for the other person in a way that brings them life in a way you never could. It feeds the right wolf, the inner man, the spirit, inner person. All of which, this whole sermon has been about this. Here's what evangelism is. The synonym for evangelism is love. <laughs> right? I want you to take a minute right now. I started off by telling you that God would, if you would let him, if you'd be willing to stand in the gap for somebody, that God would put somebody on your heart that he meant to be left there that he meant for you to carry. Would you take a minute right now? Greg, thanks. Would you take a minute right now and ask the Lord, who would you put on my heart? And if you already have somebody on your heart, would you take a minute right now to pray for them? Lift them up, go after it. Thank you, Lord.
Please stand in front of you. There's two cups. You can go ahead and keep playing if you want. And this bottom cup is the, the broken body, the, the body that we broke because of our sin. It's Jesus' broken body, but we broke it because of what we did. And it's a symbolism that it stands in for the brokenness that's in us. But I just want to say this about it. Just as Jesus healed that brokenness, right now I want you to take this bread this time for the healing of these person or persons that God just put on your heart. That you would be used of Him and however the Heavenly Father and His love and mercy would ordain that we would be used to be a healing instrument in their lives, even if they had no conception that there was a need of healing. Saying, take this communion for someone else. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we recognize not only our own brokenness, but we recognize the brokenness that is in the others, in these people that you've laid on our hearts. They don't see it, and we don't judge them for that. We do recognize it and we do stand in the gap for it. And we do say, Here am I, send me. So we put our finger in there. Whatever it takes, Lord. Break me, if it will, but heal them. Take this together, knowing that God heals brokenness. Now, in Jesus' name, we lift this cup unto you, which is the new life that you have for everybody that will receive it. And we take this cup, too, not just for ourselves, the new life that we can walk in, the one of love. Spock needs am I. But we take it in Jesus' holy and precious name that they would find that new life. Please, God, please, God, please. And knowing that you're the one that laid us on, laid them on our hearts, we say, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. Bring us and them into new life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, can you come forward, please?